are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Do you own a pair of designer glasses? Have you ever thought about who makes the handy little cleaning cloth that comes with your glasses? Our episode today is an interview with Pete Horton, founder of Pactix, the manufacturing company that makes so many of these little cloths. Both Jesse and I used to work for Pactix, so we know Pete quite well, and as a result, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. If you stick with us until the end, we will debrief a bit about some of the important themes that come up. For example, what license can sustainable fashion advocates draw from Pete's decision to make his factory in the provinces instead of the city? And how does the common practice of designating supply chain partners' risks to be minimized instead of assets in which to invest pose a challenge to equal partnership? Pete shares some of his experiences dealing with highly specialized decision-making within brands and the tension between purchasing and sustainability departments. We will share some of our own experiences with this too and try to find a constructive frame for talking about the problem. Yeah, and listeners, Pete shares quite a bit about his role financing the cost of production for his customers, for brands, even going so far as to call himself a bank. We'll unpack in a little bit more detail what this means and how it ties into a potential shift in perspective from supply chain partners as liabilities to supply chain partners as potential assets. Pete's story certainly gave us a lot to think about, and we hope you enjoy it too. Welcome, Pete, to Manufactured. Thank you for joining us today. I want to start by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself. What's Pactix? Who's Pete Holton? What kind of products do you make? Where do you operate? Paint us a picture. Uh, who is Pete Holton? I, I'll keep that short. Um, I'm uh, born in Holland. I left Holland 33 years ago on a tour around the world. The tour has not finished. Uh, made me live in uh, four different continents and uh, met a lot of cultures. And Pactix was um, founded in 2004. During a period, I lived in uh, the United States, actually in Tucson, Arizona. And Pactix started being a trading company to import uh, fabrics out of China to a factory in Mexico that was making pouches for Oakley sunglasses. So that was the start of Pactix in 2004. Um, that led to not only buying um, microfiber fabric in China, but also making the pouches for Oakley in China. And uh, that, alone, that again led to starting Pactix Shanghai in 2008 um, as a manufacturing company to produce these pouches in our own factory. And how many pouches do you think you make a year? Yeah, for the, so we do a little bit more than just the pouches. We also make cleaning cloths. Um, it's between 35 and 40 million products at the moment. Um, when we started in 2008 with our own factory, we were doing about 6 million pouches. And that has grown to, um, you know, to about 35 to 40 million at the moment, pouches and cloths. So the cloths mm -hmm. are a little bit higher than the pouches. I think we make 
12 to 14 million pouches and the rest are cleaning gloves, which is the same fabric, just instead of a pouch with a drawstring, it's a, it's a little cloth. How did Tractex shift from being a trading company to a manufacturer? And it's worth just pausing for a moment to explain what a trading company is. A trading company is a company that sources products from one country and sells them in another. So in your case, you were sourcing these eyeglass pouches from China and selling them to Oakley. You weren't actually making them yourself yet. Um, basically, it was was born out of a desire to um, to offer a better working place for employees than the suppliers that I used to work with um, were offering. So when we started producing these products in china um, we had a number of suppliers small uh, family-owned factories um, that made these the working conditions in these factories were very miserable after almost two years of trying i decided that i gave up on that and started my own factory and that was originally in china right that was in shanghai china yes and now you've, you're producing primarily in Cambodia, correct? Or only in Cambodia? We're producing at the moment only in Cambodia. In, uh, in, so 2008, we started in, in China. In 2010, um, we, we started our first pilot operation in Cambodia. Um, that was basically driven by... Uh, the fact that I saw China getting more and more expensive. So the end of cheap China was coming. And I was right with that because in 2013, uh, we couldn't, could no longer produce really in, in Shanghai. We wouldn't get any licenses anymore uh, where we were. So we had to move anyway. And we decided then to move to the entire factory to Cambodia. So 2010 was the first start of Pactics Cambodia. We started with 15 people and uh, in a town called Siem Reap in the northeast of um, Cambodia. Um, sorry, north, north west of Cambodia. Um, a town that is mostly uh, known for its tourism because the very famous Angkor Wat temples are there. Today we have 500 plus staff in, uh, in Cambodia in our own facility that we built from scratch and opened in March 2014. Mm. And could you tell us a little bit about why Siem Reap? Why not Phnom Penh? I mean, for, for people who know Cambodia, they'll know that most of the garment industry in Cambodia is in the capital in Phnom Penh. And when you tell people that you have a factory, a garment factory in Siem Reap, they look at you like you're crazy. Uh, yes, yes. Everybody said that was crazy. <laughs> proposed to set up the factory in, uh, in Simrip. There were a couple of reasons. One was that um, in China, we worked a lot with migrant workers. And migrant workers are people that come from the province and work for a temporary, go for a temporary period to the coast to make money. So the, the experience I had with, with migrant workers was that um, they, they, they don't really want to live there they just come to make as much money as they can at the shortest periods of time as they can to go back to their hometowns and that leads to a lot of staff turnover and it also leads to a environment where 
Um, they basically want to work a lot of overtime, which is expensive, um, because the, the the whole motivation is is to make to save a lot of money in a short period of time, so they can have with that savings can start something in their hometowns. And that is also the case, more or less, um, in in Cambodia. Phnom Penh, as the capital, is really too small for all the big factories that are around Phnom Penh. I mean, there's 800,000 people working in the garment industry in Cambodia. So there you have the same problem happening. Uh, people are pulled out of the provinces, uh, mainly uh, young ladies, and they are uh, put in these factories that are all in the outskirts of Phnom Penh. And they are forced to basically live in dormitories or they live in very, very substandard housings um, close to the factories. And uh, of the little money they make, they have to send a lot back home. So there is not, um, well, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a nice living. So my right. my question was really why why do you have to bring the people to the factory? Why do you have to bring the people from the province to the factory? Why don't you bring the factory to the people? Why don't you set up your factory where the people live? Then uh, you will get a a much more stable workforce. People can go home and don't have to uh, stay in in overfilled, very filthy dormitories or substandard housing um better mm. no, i mean it's better yeah. care for the people and they have a social life and of course their salaries contribute to the family income but then the family of that money can buy a tv at least they can watch for me it was like more or less a logical thing to do but because it was so foreign to everybody everybody thought this was a crazy idea it would not work and uh, and I must also say our products are very small. I mean, we can we can get 450 cartons with 2,000 products, or almost a million products in a in a container, a 20 foot container. So when you are we are further away, of course, from the port than in Phnom Penh. From Phnom Penh, it's four or five hours to the port. We are you know, closer to to 10, 12 hours from the port. So there's more expensive and longer logistics, but when, when you make small products, it's not that much of an extra cost. And the benefit you get to have your people close um, is tremendous. I mean, of the 15 people we started with in 2010, we still have people working for us. Um, right. And we have a very stable workforce. In China, I had a turnover of 15% a month. Um, in Siem Reap, I have 10% a year. Um, very low sick leave. You and I both know, I mean, I had quite some years of experience working in Phnom Penh and it was really tough because people are far from their families. They're in this sort of ecosystem of garment factories and it makes it really tough to build up a relationship of trust between management and, and workers because you're sort of, you know, you're trying to build up a rapport and establish a relationship in a, a, an ocean of 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 ill will and and abuse of of and or misery. Ill, poor treatment and misery and abuse poor treatment of 
of, of vulnerable workers. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, and I want to ask you about uh, when Oakley was bought by Luxottica and the impact that that had on Pactix. Okay, so so Oakley got acquired by Luxottica, I think it was in 2008 or nine, And um, for the first years, it was uh, business as usual. We worked for Oakley. We had a, we had a sole suppliership. Um, so... Can you, what's a sole suppliership? So that meant that we, Oakley was not buying the microfiber uh, products anywhere else, and we were not allowed to work for other companies, uh, eyewear companies, because Oakley didn't want any advances they did or any um, new products that they developed that other people that would visit our company could see that. So the sole suppliership was, was for them a, a way to keep new product developments under the hood. And for us, it was a guarantee that when Oakley grew, that we grew with them. And that was a very good relationship because we started, as I said, to work with Oakley I mean, in, in 2005. And Oakley grew quite a lot. I think we were making about 6 million pouches in the beginning. And, and around 2010, we were making... Uh, making around 10 million so it was a um a good relationship there was a relationship of trust um they were a tough company to work for i mean quality standards were very high um but they were a fair company to work with and uh, then um then um yeah it became a little bit luxotic was of course a lot larger than oakley um they had many brands that they were producing and license. And just for our listeners uh, out there, what we talk when we talk about licensing in this context, what we talk what we mean is that Luxottica has the right to produce um, and sell uh, sunglasses on behalf of a lot of the big name brands. So, for example, when you buy a pair of Bulgari sunglasses, uh, that brand has been licensed to Luxottica, and Luxottica is the one who is organizing and arranging for those products to be made and to be distributed. And then on top of that, of course, they also have their own brand. Their main own brand was Ray-Ban. Um, and with the purchase of, of Oakley, they wanted also to have a sports brand because Oakley's foundation was in, in sports. Then they worked for all the big uh, famous fashion houses they where they made the, the the sunglasses in license so they had about 15 uh, brands that they worked for so that was all the big names Prada, Armani, Versace, uh, Tiffany, Coach, um, Michael, yeah, Kors. Burberry, Michael Kors, you name it, sets the pricing um, by not only having the manufacturing, but also controlling a large part of the retail. So companies like Lancaster and Sunglass Hats uh, are owned by, by Luxottica. Um, so, um, and, and with that, they have uh, made it a very expensive item. Braban um, Sunglasses, when they were still owned by Bausch & Laub in in the US was selling at gas stations for $10-15. I mean, a pair of sunglasses, there's, there's not much to a pair of sunglasses. I mean, 
to produce them is 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 a lot less. But that <laughs> balance between what they cost to make and what they are sold for. But okay, that's a fact of life. <laughs> Um, so the the first uh, encounters with um, the Luxottica way of doing business was quite dramatic, actually, for us, because um, I was told that sole suppliership was not something that Luxottica was favoring, um, that they already had a lot of suppliers for the microfiber, and they were not really sure if they needed us. And our prices were way too high. Uh, compared to what they could get them for in China, and um, and secondly, uh, yeah, um, they wanted to reduce the number of suppliers. So um, basically, the message was um, that all the years that we worked for Oakley were the value of that was quite quickly diminished. This was all. This was all in 2011 when that happened. Yes. Mm. And um, they were doubtful if they wanted to continue doing business with us. And they, I had a contract with OP, which they basically canceled. I had a five-year contract um, that I would supply all the pouches for a certain price and uh, and keep my sole, uh, sole suppliership. But that was canceled by Luxottica. Well, there was... I think yeah, well, at that moment, two years left on the contract. Legally, they couldn't cancel the contract, but uh, my only way um, to basically fight this was to go and, and sue them, which I didn't think that I would have stand a chance against such a big corporation. And they knew that. I mean, they knew that, that I wouldn't let try that. So uh, after thought about this for a few uh, days, I went back to them and said, okay, I will I will agree that you cancel the contract, but then I want to bid on the rest of your products um, because um, I wanted to yeah, keep keep basically the factory alive and, and, and the work for the people alive. And I felt that when I was only doing the pouches that um, I was soon being replaced by an existing supplier Luxottica had. So they agreed on that. And um, that means that we went from a company of about 100, a little bit over 100 people to a company of over 300 people in less than 18 months and started to make Ray-Ban cloths, started to make all the cloths for the for Prada, for Bulgari, for and at the meantime, we were uh, increasing our capacities in uh, in Cambodia and building the new factory in Cambodia. So that all happened at almost at the same time. In order to get more volume, we had to reduce our prices. And that has been a continuous team for us working with Luxottica there. View on life is that um, you can increase efficiencies every year, and you should do that as a factory. And they, <laughs> you, the customer should basically benefit from that. Uh, so they really demand somewhere between by, three and five. By customer, you mean Luxottica, right? Not the consumer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so by uh, by default, they demand three to five percent cost reductions every year. 
Yeah, that would be okay uh, when you take into account the cost increases also, but that was not allowed. So um, just to give you an idea, when I started in 2010 in Cambodia, the minimum wage in the garment industry was $65 a month, which I thought was criminal. We started our factory at $85 a month, which was still low, but in a town as Seam Reap seemed to be doable. Um, so in in the years um, up to 2000. And uh, 18, uh, wages have gone up to, to what are they now? Over $200. Um, yeah. Once you include all the benefits and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so those cost increases, microfiber went up in price. We're all not, we were not allowed to, uh, to take into account. So to give you an idea, in, uh, in 2010, uh, an Oakley pouch I sold to Oakley for 31 cents. That same pouch is sold today to Luxottica for 21 cents. Mm. So it's it's uh, it's a third of two third of the price. Right, that's While costs crazy. have gone uh, gone way up. up. Yes, I mean in right. 2010 in China the minimum wage was like a little bit over a hundred dollars a month. And and now the minimum wage is like seven hundred dollars a month in China, so right. it is. Um, and and our prices only went down. And the second argument they are using um, for price reduction is that there is other companies who can do it cheaper. Mm. Um, now that is, um, of course, something that is that is hard to prove. Um, so every year we reduce prices and, 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 and the difference between us and the competition, and that competition is in China. They admit that that competition is in China, stays at a constant of 20%. We are 20% more expensive year over year over year over year. While we reduce price, reduce price, reduce price. That's what we never they tell to you. Catch up. That's what they tell us. Mm. And then... Um, and then you ask yourself, how can a company in China compete with us in Cambodia while our wages are so much lower in Cambodia than China? And and uh, yeah, they, they do business with the same suppliers I did business with in 2005, and which I decided that they were not worth doing business with. So the compliance of these factories is, is extremely low. Um, these factories do a lot of outsourcing to um, yeah, illegal outsource places, I would call it, to private homes. Mm. And um, that's how they can keep their, their cost down. But of course, that is not in, uh, that's not allowed according to the CSR requirements of a company like Luxottica. Because when you go to their <laughs> website, um, they have, uh, a set of rules that that is, uh, is quite impressive. Mm. Now, then you ask yourself, why are these rules not enforced? And then you find out how this works in these big corporations. And I don't think that Luxottica, in that in that sense, is an exception. The mm. the the way they they organize this is that, and I'm not sure if they do it on purpose, but the reality is and the practice is that this is how it works. You have 
you have compliance departments whose tasks is to make sure that there is compliance in the supply chain. And then you have the purchasing departments and sourcing departments whose task it is to buy as cheap as possible and also reduce purchasing costs year over year over year. I mean, that's where the, the drive in price reductions comes from. Right. And what you also see that the, the compensations of the people in the purchasing department are mainly driven by that price reduction. Because that's easy to calculate. You save so much for the company, then your bonus is X. Right. They they have no obligation at all to make sure that where they buy is 100% compliant. And every time you refer to that with the sourcing department, they said that's not our department. Our mm-hmm. compliance department takes care of that. Then you come with the, com- the compliance department and you say, but how is it possible that you use factories that are not compliant? They said, that's impossible. All our factories that we use are audited. We have audit reports. None of the factories we do business with, of the people we do business with, are non-compliant. Mm. So then you ask yourself, but how is that possible? How can that contradict each other? And, and they both were telling the truth. So what you find then is that the factories they buy from, they don't buy direct from. Mm. So they either have traders in between or they buy from one factory that buys from the other factory. So the one factory they have on the list and on the books is 100% compliant. Mm. But the company, the factory where it's made is not. And then you ask yourself, does Luxottica know that? Yeah, of course Luxottica know that because they visit these factories where it's made. The sourcing <laughs> department and the quality people do that. But in the books of Luxottica, when you go to the headquarters and ask the compliance department, they have um, all green check marks behind all the suppliers and say, these suppliers, this is where we buy from, this is the supplier we pay, this is the supplier that is listed for this product. And they are all compliant. Like tactics in Cambodia, yes, we are fully compliant. And just to give people a sense, how much uh, more expensive is tactics than a non-compliant facility? When when a company in China that is competing with us had to pay uh, full wages to everybody, had to mm-hmm. pay full overtime to everybody had to pay full social security to everybody, which is mandatory by law, which is not happening, and would not outsource to uh, private homes and other uh, less less favorable places, then they wouldn't <laughs> be able to compete with us. Yes, it's not that we are so much more com- uh, expensive because we are compliant. Compliance for us is not a major cost. Uh, but mm. for but I'm not competing on a level playing field. I'm competing against a company that breaks the rules. That's why they can compete with us. That's why Luxottica can keep claiming they are 20% cheaper than us because it's not mm. a level playing field. It's not uh, comparing apples to apples. And when you come to the compliance at at uh, at, at Pactis Cambodia, for us, it's not a cost. For us, it is 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 a matter of. I mean, 
a, to have a safe environment in your factory is a right that your employees have. Yes. And because you have a safe environment is one of the things that you are compliant. I, I, you can't view that as an extra cost. Yes. Right. When you don't have a safe working environment, it's, it's simply criminal. Right. So it's, 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 you either have a safe environment or you don't have one. Yes. And then you shouldn't right. have a factor. Right. Yeah? There is no compromise on safety. There is no compromise on the health of your employees. Now, why do we have a daycare center? Do we do that because it's it's by law? Not not that's not the the, the full reason. We have a daycare right. center so that my uh, trained workers after maternity leave can come back to work. Right. And that is a benefit for the company. It's also a benefit for the worker that we have a daycare center because they don't lose income when they get a baby. Mm. Um, so these are things that, that people rave about when they come and visit uh, Pactics. And, and, and they, they, they think about Pactics as a wonderful thing. And, and, and the nickname of Pactics in Seam Reef is the Pactics Resort. Um, <laughs> well, so, it is quite lush and quite green. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, but it it all has a reason. I mean, the lush and green is to help cooling the buildings. We are we having a factory in the tropics, yes. And 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 from an environmental point of view, you don't want to uh, spend uh, um, on on air conditionings, and, and because right. they are a tremendous. Um, polluting when you think about it when when you mm -hmm. look at the amount of electricity they use mm, um, right we have a lot of daylight in our factory mm. um, that is a little bit more costly to build but gives a lot of benefits because it gets a very very friendly um, spacious uh, light working environment so we, during the day we don't need any electrical light that's how much light mm. we have in the factory and Putting people that are used to light and are used to outdoor in a, in a dark hole is not going to do much for your productivity. So that's why we have all the light. But. So I want to shift also now to talk a little bit or to ask you to share a little bit about the day-to-day -day operations at Pactix. So could you tell us a little bit about where your raw materials come from? and how far in advance they have to be ordered, how you decide how much you're going to order. Paint us a picture of how that works. Okay, so again, out of cost reasons, uh, most of our um, materials come from China. It's still the cheapest place to buy it. It's um, And there aren't very many raw fabrics, fabrics being produced in Cambodia, right? There's hardly any in Cambodia. There's right. a, a few cotton plants, but there's, there's hardly anything produced. So, um, so everything has to be imported. Um, so we have a, a sourcing uh, company in China. It used to be in Shanghai, but we moved it out of cost reasons again to uh, Wuxi, which is about 125 uh, people from uh, kilometers from Shanghai, small little town of eight million people that nobody has heard of. <laughs> um, so there we have a warehouse and we have about 10 people um, that deal with our suppliers in China um, that consolidate the containers 
every two weeks we ship a container to Seamweave uh, with materials. That's about two weeks door to door, which is, um, of course, adds to our cost. Our cost of the materials about 10, 10 to 12 percent higher than when I was would be operating in uh, in, uh, in China. China. Uh, so that's the cost of the operation and the extra logistics cost we have. I want to talk a little bit about timeline. So from the moment you decide to order then until the moment you receive the raw materials in Cambodia, how much time elapses? The, the, we give our uh, main suppliers for the microfiber and for the woven uh, polyester fibers that we use for the turbulent and luggage uh, products. Um, we give them a forecast. I just want to elaborate a little bit quickly on what a forecast is um, for our listeners who might not be aware or who haven't heard this term before. But a forecast is a prediction for how much of a particular good you're going to sell. So you have forecasts at multiple levels. For example, Pactix will get a forecast from its customer, Luxottica, about how many pieces Luxottica thinks it's going to sell. And then Pactix will in turn use that to make plans for how many raw materials they need to buy, how many people they need to have on staff to produce the given forecasted quantity. And that forecast basically gets passed down. So Pactix will receive that forecast from Luxottica, but Pactix will also pass that on to its raw material suppliers so that they can do the same thing, so that they can also plan for their inputs and for their labor. So they produce what we call the great goods mainly mm -hmm. on forecast. Uh, mm -hmm. Great goods are basically uh, woven undyed. or dyed, yeah, undyed, so woven or knitted uh, fabrics that are not dyed. And it takes about two weeks to die. And it's important to differentiate here between a forecast and a purchase order. Whereas a forecast is a prediction for how many pieces a brand thinks it might sell, a purchase order is a commitment to buy. It's a legally binding contract, which is also relevant in the face of or canceled orders during global pandemic, because not only were these forecasts way off, but then the purchase orders came in, and even those aren't being honored. But <laughs> I digress. So the dyeing is done on the purchase orders we give them. Mm. Um, and then when they ship, basically the clock starts ticking, and we have to we receive the invoices from them monthly at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. And then we pay in uh, 30, 45, or 60 days. And then you have about a month to produce the products in Cambodia before they ship out again. Oh, uh, <laughs> it takes about five weeks to get to uh, to the destination. And uh, there we stock it in our own warehouses. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have to wait until the customer needs it. So we ship to three locations when it comes to Luxottica, um, mm -hmm. China, um, Italy and the US mm -hmm. and in all three we have a warehouse to store our finished goods and the companies have 90 days to call off and here call off means that the brand decides that they need it and that they're going to use it and that's where the when the ownership is transferred so mm -hmm. when it arrives in the warehouse and they have not called it off within 90 days then we can uh, that we can force them to uh, call it off. 
And only when that's called off, we can invoice. And then we have 120 days end of the month payment term. So when you add this all up, um, <laughs> from the moment we order the materials till we get paid for the finished goods is six to seven months. So I've told the Luxottica once that I'm not a manufacturer or supplier to them. I'm, I'm their bank. You're their bank, right? Which is crazy, right? Because the amount of profit you're making and the amount of revenue you have to be able to 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 front these costs is, you know, so marginal relative to their resources. Yeah. I want to go back to forecasts for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit about the forecasts that you get from Luxottica or from other customers and what you do to increase the odds or the chances that they're correct because ultimately that's when you're making the decision to buy and that's when you assume quite a lot of risk so but we also have a lot of history because we work with them for such a long time so Mm -hmm. um, sometimes when we get a forecast we already tell them this can't be right and And how do you know that can you elaborate because of the history and and, and we know what they normally use. And you see, they can't watch every component. But for us, we have with Luxottica probably 50, 60 end items. For us to monitor that in detail, well, they probably have thousands and thousands of components they order every month. So for them to monitor that all in detail is, is much harder than for us. So when we see strange things like suddenly peaks or suddenly we don't see uh, an item, an item disappeared from the forecast, and there's normally something going on in their systems, either the bit of material has changed, somebody made an engineering change and made a mistake in it. Um, yeah, we had very, very strange things. Mm. Um, we had situations where they were, were ordering suddenly... Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, Pactix plays an active role in helping Luxottica to forecast effectively. I mean, they'll give you some idea of what they want to produce, but you you then go through it with a fine-tooth comb because you have such a good understanding of about the history and about the company that you're actually in a position to say to them, hey, I don't think you've got this right. Yeah, I mean, we got sometimes forecasts that we, that we called them and said, you don't have capacity to make so many sunglasses. Why do you need so many bags? <laughs> right. And they said, but how I wanna... do you know how much capacity we have? It says, because yeah. we're doing business with you for 15 years. We know exactly what you can make. <laughs> I want to ask one more thing about the forecast. Because when they give you a forecast and they say, okay, you know, next month we're going to need, or in the next six months we're going to need X number of pieces, are they bound to their forecast? I mean, if they get it way wrong, uh, what are the consequences? You do your best to adjust it, but sometimes it's still not quite right, right? Yeah. So what's the consequence? Yeah, then then these goods are shipped and these goods are in the warehouse and and then the 90-day rule starts to pay. So So there is some accountability there. Yeah, but of course they want to get out of it. I mean, we are still, we have stock sitting there already for two years. That they should have called <laughs> off, and then they and they say, "Yeah, we'll do a little bit this quarter," because mm. it it looks bad on everybody's record to to buy something that that they don't use. Yes, right, right. And 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 nobody wants to admit that they made a mistake. 
and sometimes yeah sometimes they they they, they change the bill of material and and yeah i mean a simple example is ferrari mm. uh, oakley was making ferrari bags and ferrari glasses and then ray-ban got on the ferrari formula one cars Guess mm-hmm. what? Oakley. They said to Oakley, Ray-Ban is. We have. We need the Ferrari bags, uh, sunglasses now to be made by Ray-Ban. So, yeah, bang. There, they changed that over a month, and there was all my Ferrari bags in stock. So those are all they, still sitting they, in a warehouse somewhere. They were sitting in a warehouse. There were that we had materials for them. We had half finished goods in the, in the factory. So yeah, then then. Um, we we had a couple of years ago, uh, uh, not a couple of years, about seven eight years ago, when the whole disaster with Lance Armstrong happened. Mm. So mm. we were making Lance Armstrong uh, sublimated bags, and that that stopped overnight. Mm. Um, mm. They had a contract with Sean White, the famous snowboarder, Olympic. Mm-hmm. And, and and then Sean mm-hmm. White cancelled the contract and we were sitting with, I don't know how many Sean White bags. Right. And it's really interesting because I think this is a side of sustainability that people rarely think about is the consequence of changing a product and all the waste that that generates and that gets stuck in the system and also who pays for that. Yeah. yeah. We had stock sitting in the warehouse in the US. We had a we had a containers outside full of obsolete mm. Oakley stock that we only destroyed I think just six months ago. That has been that there were there were and that was stock they paid for, yes. I mean it was not but they couldn't use anymore. But mm. before they could make a decision to pay for the destruction of that stock, because we couldn't just throw it away. It all had Oakley branding on it. Right. But but before they got that approved that they would pay for the destruction of that stock, that whole container full, that was quite a painful process, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I want to wrap this conversation by asking you to share some of your thoughts about the future of tactics and sustainability more generally in the fashion industry. Oh, that's a big topic. That should be a podcast <laughs> on its own. That's true. Um, That's true. But just y- okay. your so, brief so remarks. During yeah, so during this conversation, we only have talked about Luxottica, and mm. and Luxottica is 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 the history of tactics. Yeah, we we mm-hmm. we started by mid sunglasses, and and we grew up with sunglasses. So on one end, I'm grateful to to Luxottica because they made us the company we are today, and they help us to employ quite a lot of. Um, people in Seam Reap that deserve decent employment. So um, there are good and bad things with every relationship you have. And the good thing is that we have a steady, a very stable demand coming from Luxottica. Yes, and we should be mm. grateful for that. And that is at the moment you know, around 60% of our turnover. Mm. Um, what is the future of Pactics? Pactics needs to be have a much more balanced portfolio. and. and the dependency we have now on Luxottica is uh, is too high, and I mean the Corona crisis has, has shown that because um, their factories have been shut now since the the second week of March, mm. and we must understand when these factories shut, there is no call offs. I mean, there's no call offs. There's no income for factories. So you have a 
art seven stock. So we need different products. Um, the Luxottica clots is is have very low labor content. I mean, a cloth has a little bit of printing on it or embossing on it, and it's it's basically you have material, you cut it, you fold it, put it in a plastic bag, and put it in a box. So the labor content on a cloth is very low. When we have products in Cambodia with low labor content, it's harder for us to compete with China because China has the advantage on the logistics and their labor is higher, but when the labor content is low, then the advantages for us with the lower labor are are, are less. I mean, that's logic. Mm-hmm. So we need products with a higher labor content because there we have a better... Uh, a better uh, chance of being able to compete. To compete, yes. The second thing that we have in Cambodia is that we have a tremendous duty uh, advantage now for travel and luggage goods with uh, shipping to the US. Relative so, to China. But, relative to China and Vietnam, which are the biggest suppliers of travel and luggage goods. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vietnam has a 17.6% duty to the US, and China, with the Trump madness, has now 42.7% duty to the US. So that is tremendous uh, mm-hmm. for these goods. And, and more and more companies are now prepared to switch, mm-hmm. which was much harder to do before when... Um, when um, we didn't have this duty advantage. Because mm. customers don't want to switch. Switching mm. supply is always a huge risk. So the, the first one that did that is Chico Bags in Chico, Northern California. and um, They have basically switched their entire production to us. And the owner told me a few weeks ago that um, he was so happy about this switch because um, it's not only that we are more reliable than the, than the supplier he had, we also um, produce a much higher quality than the supplier they had. So we need more <laughs> Chico's. Um, and, and why do we and more, when you, need more when Chico's? When you say Chico, you mean yeah. small to medium-sized companies or aligned with yes, your we values? Need, we, need, we need companies where we can add more than just being a manufacturer. See, for, for Luxottica, we are just a, a factory that makes products as cheap as possible for them. And uh, and uh, there's very little added value we can add to that product because they have the full control over how the product looks like and how they want the product to be. When mm. you work with a smaller um, factory uh, or a smaller client, um, there you can add more value by controlling the logistics, by controlling, by helping in the design, by proposing different materials um, mm. and, and and then you basically have a more um, more services added to your offering um, and that makes you uh, adds more value to the customer a more equal partner propose. yes and you you propose more more value to the customer than just a, a product right so that's what we try to do so we are moving in a direction where we uh, want to have more control over the product and and uh, and also have a product with a higher uh, labor content because that makes it easier for mm. us to compete and higher labor means also more people mm. that we can put to work. So right. that was it was one of the things that why we moved to Cambodia. Right. 
Yeah, and I think but, it's but, interesting but no, the, too. Was that now the answer to your question? No, you asked about sustainability. No, no. Well, I think it is the answer to that though too, because I think, you know, by entering into a supplier brand or client relationship on more equal footing, you're also able to negotiate terms which are more fair. And that's a big part of doing business more sustainably, right? Yes, yes, yes. And 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 those smaller companies uh, are, are having more sustainable product in the first place. Um, I mean, Chico bags, for example, is, is very sustainable. I mean, they, they made it their mission to ban plastics out of the world. So um, all their, all their materials are recycled or are, mm. are, uh, they, mm. they avoid using any plastics, any plastic packaging. Um, so that's, that's very, very prominent in their, in their, uh, products in, in in their company culture, what are, uh, but what it's the also things... easier with these companies to to have discussions about that. Yes, uh, to propose when ideas. I look, when and... I yeah, when I think about it, that we make eighteen million uh, Ray-Ban cloths a year, and they all go into a little poly bag that basically is immediately discarded when the when the customer gets the glasses. Is is sad because it's right. a mountain of plastic right. every year. Right. 18 million little poly bags. Yeah. And when you try and introduce new ideas to big customers like that, I mean, there's there's a lot of resistance, right? It has no attention. I mean, the, 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 the problem is the only, the only reply you get is, will it be cheaper? I mean, you say, and no, even it then, will not be cheaper. Then they say, then we are not interested to even discuss it. So, right. um, so there is no no drive with them to to do something more sustainable. And, right. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story. Okay. Before we conclude this episode, Jesse and I want to unpack some of the things that Pete talked about. Let's start with the idea of putting the factory in the province instead of the city. You know, something that's worth pausing to highlight here is the conditions that made it possible for him to have his factory in Siem Reap. I mean, he mentions the fact that he has a small, that he has a, his products in general are very small. And so the extra cost of you know, being further from the port and having to transport them a longer distance is minimal because his products are small. Right. Um, his products are also quite simple um, and don't require uh, a lot of skill. And most of the h- highly skilled sewers in Cambodia are in Phnom Penh. And so, um, you know, this is also a condition that for him specifically made putting a, a factory in Siem Reap possible. Um, and, and I think that that's worth pausing on for, because, you know, I think that in, especially in sustainability speak, there's a tendency to see a good thing and to say, well, we should do it like that everywhere. All factories should be moved to the province. I think that's, that's not the lesson to draw from this example. I think a much more valuable lesson to draw from this example is that what makes sense from a social responsibility perspective really depends on context, the social context of the country you're in, the kind of business that you have, the kind of products that you're making, 
Yeah, yeah. I think context is really something we needed to disclose or or highlight it here. Uh, after all, if Pactix is producing something quite complicated like uh, outdoor pack, uh, backpacks or something mm. like jeans, let's say, then mm. setting up a factory in Sanrep will dramatically increase the cost a lot because you need to mm-hmm. source all kinds of accessories, right? And right. we are far from a center of, uh, let's say we are far from Phnom Penh. All the small suppliers are in Phnom Penh. So the accessories will take lots of time for us to source and to get it in Sinrip. And then the logistic right. cost, sourcing cost, time cost, complication cost, all increase that. So the context, yeah. yes, as you said, is very important. Pete can do so also because of the context. Yeah, and I think it's it plays in pretty directly to equal partnership as well. When we talk about equal partnership across the supply chain, I mean, brands who are not doing production themselves will not know what makes sense based on context. And yet the door to that communication right now, I think is just closed because there's so much supplier fear of retribution. And so I think it's not only that we need to consider context, but also that the sustainability agenda needs to consider and to focus on ways that sort of open those doors and those lines of communication and make suppliers feel a little safer so that they can put that knowledge forward. Yes, and to make them feel safer, it's also very important to play fair. By saying play fair, I mean, uh, you play competitions on the same ground. So if the brands or the companies or let's say purchasing side can make competitions, can compare cost or prices on a in the same ground, then suppliers definitely will feel much safer to speak out what they think and the reasons behind their decisions. I think trust here is quite important. And back to the the decisions Pete made for setting up factories in Sinrip, I think another very interesting thing I want to highlight is uh, he mm. considered the awareness of his uh, workers. He considered mm. he would like them to leave at home, leave home and go to factories every day. So in the night can go back home instead of crumbling a dormitory. So basically he see his, uh, his workers or his employees as assets. He, mm. their the awareness eventually is his goodness. His right. Awareness. Exactly. His yeah. success depends on them. And there's very much a recognition of that. And that is very much in contrast to the relationship then between him and his customer, where, I mean, you see you, you see it when he talks about shifting from, or when Oakley was bought by Luxottica and that when he was working with Oakley, that he had a sole supplier contract and that that, you know, there was an interest and an advantage to that for both sides. Yes. And that when he was bought out by Luxottica, that that sole supplier contract was was basically seen as a risk, right? And to have, yeah. because you have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And so, um, and, you know, basically what that is saying is that supply chain partners or suppliers are a liability and are a risk to be managed um, rather than an asset worth investing in. Um, in the way that Pete, uh, in his particular case, has chosen to invest in in his people, right? Um, and so I think for me, that's a fundamental question is how as an industry, as a sustainability uh, advocates, do we go from, from seeing suppliers as liabilities, um, you know, and risks that need to be minimized to actually assets worth investing in? 
And an equal partnership really depends on that because it's impossible to talk about equal partnership if the point of departure is that suppliers are are, are liabilities. Are liability. Yeah. You cannot have a equal relationship with someone if you say them as a risk to be managed or a cost needs to needs to always press down or yeah, a liability. Yeah. Yeah, it it makes me feel in a company like um let's say a brand company, a brand or mm. in a buying company, it makes me feel the sustainability department or compliance department and the sourcing, purchasing and the sourcing team seems they are not on the same they're not in the same decision making process, that's for sure, but they are also yeah. not on the same positions. It gives me a feeling since since I step into textile industry that sourcing and uh, purchasing department has the biggest power. They can decide many things, which is sometimes not exactly constant with uh, with the direction of sustainability. Mm, you could even take it a step further and you could say that, you know, these highly specialized departments pretty directly serves to to circumvent or avoid accountability and ownership over decisions. I've been wondering about this when we talk about sustainability. People have asked me um, at times, you know, when I've written articles or, or said things like, well, I've, I've worked with people within brands who, you know, don't seem to understand the consequence of, of their decisions on me and uh, and my team. And people have responded to that sometimes by saying, well, is more training the answer? Do we need to provide more training to, to staff working within brands so that they understand the consequences of their actions? And examples like, you know, what, what Pete has just set out and what you've just described kind of make me skeptical because I'm like, is the problem really? Okay, yes, maybe their employee, maybe brand employees don't understand the consequences of their actions on their suppliers. But even if they did in this example, what power would they have to do anything about it? I don't know how many times I've been told, well, I'm sorry, but these are our company's rules. Yeah. Right? Yes, and exactly. That, and that just, and that's, that's where we need to be looking at is those rules, those rules that govern decision making within brands. I don't, I, you know, I think training is a bit. It's too light naive. to say, yeah, it's too, too naive. naive. Yeah, it's too naive. Yeah. The right angle to think about all this maybe is yeah. uh, how the power, the right yes, the right framing, how the decision power is distributed inside of a company, inside of a mm. brand company. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like an, uh, a nice way to, to tie this up too is when Pete, Pete says up, you know, Pete may, at some point says, well, I've told Luxottica that I'm not a factory, I'm their bank. And, you know, this just goes to further show, I mean, and he goes on to say that, or, or to outline the timeline, which basically shows that, you know, he's financing and he's financing the cost of production six or seven months in advance before he ever sees any money for, for his, uh, for his products. And I'd say that that's a pretty valuable asset, right? And that <laughs> yeah. just, uh, yeah, and that just goes to underscore just how somehow absurd it is that we've gotten into this world where it seems normal to treat your supply chain partners as a risk, as a liability. And then you, he later goes on to also explain, and, um, you know, I was part of this too in my capacity when I was general manager of, of uh, one of the Pactex facilities, 
is, you know, he goes through their forecast with a fine tooth comb and spots their mistakes and opens the discussion when he sees things that he feels are a problem or are not reasonable. Again, I'd say that's a pretty valuable asset. And yet somehow it feels so controversial or, you know, like you're coming in from outer space to say that we should be seeing suppliers uh, as an asset, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of seeing us as a cost to be controlled or risks to be managed, let's say. I feel quite excited when I heard Peter said factory is a bank. Uh, finally, mm. someone speak out the truth. Um, often people have a misunderstanding because when buyers or when brands place orders, sometimes brand will place a deposit. So I think mm. it's uh, very important to mention those deposits are not uh, fully, cannot fully cover the investment uh, materials and human resources that a factory invested at the beginning. And you need to make space on your planning, on your schedule. So it means if this order is lost, your raw material cost might get covered, might not. However, it also means there is a, a certain period of time. opportunity. Is, yes, it's empty, it's wasted over there. Yeah. It, you, you, you waste, we waste so much time basically um, trying to find ways of coping with uncertainty. Let's time why. and resources. Yeah, that's why I think what Pete provided, what he can provide and what he provided already, and also what other factories provided already are very valuable. It's not just a, a bank of money. It's not just upfront mm. some, uh, some money invest into raw materials or equipment. It's mm. also experiences. The whole experience is helping the customers to control risks, basically right. to make knowing sure. how to do this, knowing how yeah. to have a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, and having a team and an infrastructure that allows you to deploy plan A one day and plan C the next day, because yeah. that's not easy. And all this is just to make sure the goods will arrive on the customer side on time. I know. Yeah, something something we think it should be, but actually it's not it should be. It's uh it's something put lots of efforts to get it. So Yeah, it yeah. feels I think on the customer side it often is perceived as especially today in the days of Amazon where you buy something online today and you get it tomorrow, it's 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 like I it should really be. taken for granted taken <laughs> for granted how much work goes into making that possible. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what Pete uh, mentioned at the end is really interesting. It's really valuable. It's, uh, it's not just the money invested in upfront. It's also mm. experiences, knowledge, skills, and the whole team of work. Right. And I think it's, it, it's worth also highlighting the note that Pete concludes on, which is that he is, um, really clearly very grateful to Luxottica, despite, you know, the challenges he he makes a point of highlighting also the stable demand that Luxottica offers. And I think that this is something that is worth pointing out too, because it is quite unusual in the in the fashion industry, whereas with the eyewear industry, um and and the particular kind of product that Pete is that Pactix is making, the demand is a little bit more stable. It's not quite as up and down. And the, that also has pretty directly enabled him to have his staff on permanent contracts instead of relying on outsourcing partners. 
And I think it makes sense to wrap up on this stable demand because, or constant demand, because it's it's a recurring theme that I think we'll see again and again in our conversations and our episodes. Pete, thank you once again for joining us today and sharing your story. And that does it for us this week, Manufactured listeners. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show, and we'd love your help with that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.